Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast, a podcast series on the New Books Network, where we explore life's big questions with seasoned uh, seekers and scholars alike. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the, the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Artie Dond, who is Associate Professor um, at the University of Toronto. She is a professor of uh, religion in the Department uh, for the Study of Religion. And her focus, her, her object of research is an ancient Sanskrit epic called the Mahabharata. Arti, welcome to the Life Wisdom Podcast. Thank you, Raj. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. So tell us how you uh, professionally entered the world of the Mahabharata. Like, how did you become uh, essentially a professor of Hinduism specializing in this ancient Sanskrit epic? Well, this story takes me a long way back. I had no intention of studying either the Mahabharata or Hinduism or religion at all. I started off doing English literature and history. Those were my two passions at the University of Calgary. Then I wanted to do graduate studies. It turns out options in those areas were limited for the sort of work that I wanted to do. So I veered into religious studies. And in religious studies, I discovered uh, the epics. So uh, I started my early work on the Valmiki Ramayana. And then I was looking for a doctoral project and um, picked the Mahabharata, which is, of course, a much bigger text. So this was the, this is a really good choice for me as it turns out, in terms of my personality, my interests over my life, because they encompass so much. They encompass their literature, the fantastic works of literature, but they also have um, at least some, they have, they contain philosophy, they contain lengthy discussions of moral issues. What's what's the right way to behave in a particular situation? What are the principles that should guide our action in the world? Uh, they contain uh, religious reflection. So it, it seems to me that they brought all of this together in a, in a, in a vehicle that was uh, entrancing, charming, uh, enticing, uh, the vehicle of literature. And so once I started that journey, there's really no going back. I mean, the epics, these are, this is a world that sucks you in, takes you with it. And then you're walking the rest of your life pretty much with these characters in your head uh, in conversation. So that's my journey into the Mahabharata. So I started my graduate work, I did my doctoral work on uh, the Mahabharata and um, that's what I've been doing ever since, um, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Um, Archie Dond has actually authored a, a fascinating book on um, women um, and, and uh, gender uh, in the Mahabharata. Uh, woman is sage, woman is fire, I believe it is. Uh, there is a podcast in New Books in Indian Religions where we talk about that work on some of these themes, if you're interested um, but when you talk about um, part of the Mahabharata's project being um, offering these uh, guiding principles, guiding life principles, this sounds an awful lot like 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 life wisdom to me. 
And so um, tell us about uh, the Mahabharata's capacity uh, to, 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 to speak wisely to us or illumine life in some way, shape or form. What does the Mahabharata have to do with life wisdom? The Mahabharata is, undertakes this project of life wisdom in all its facets. I would certainly say so. But this is a massive text, right? 18 volumes long. Um, and it's, it's extraordinarily ambitious. It wants to be pretty well the definitive source. It says this in the first few chapters. It wants to be the definitive source to every manner of human perplexity, every perplexity of living. So it wants to talk about how to be in the material world, it wants to talk about love in all of its different aspects. It wants to talk about virtue, um, how to live uh, the right way. And it wants to also talk about transcendence, uh, enlightenment, self-discovery. In other words, the, the highest of human aspirations. So it's an extraordinarily ambitious text that speaks to, at least seeks to speak to every aspect of being human. And in this drive, it covers the entire panoply of human experience. So through its stories, through its narrative, it covers the entire panoply of human uh, experience in terms of love, hatred, jealousy, pride, virtue, deceit, desire, fear, everything you can think of, uh, our characters. And it has a long time to develop the story, 18 volumes, a long, long time. So our characters experience all these uh, this diversity of emotion this mess of emotion and so it has a lot to say about pretty well every possible subject and uh, so i wouldn't presume to say i could summarize anything uh, about you know what the mahabharata says about uh, you and wisdom but, uh, but i think we can talk about talk in bite-sized pieces we can talk about the, the wisdom of the text in bite-sized pieces two on little snippets here and there uh, and see uh, what what we can find there so well, the, well the wisdom of the the mahabharata is definitely oceanic perhaps um uh, uh, perhaps a particular um, episode, character, tale, aspect comes to mind that you may want to share with the audience. Well, um, uh, before that, I, I can think of three principles that it seems to me the text um, is advocating, or at least that we can draw upon, that I've drawn, drawn out of the text, you know, for, just for different moments in my life. Uh, three relatively simple pieces of wisdom that I think are pertinent at all times to all people. And so um, I'll share those with you, and then we can talk, then let's see how they work with characters. Um, some, of this, the, the, some of this will seem trite, to begin with, but when you start unpacking it, um, we find there's, uh, there's considerable depth in, um, in the idea. So the first point um, that the Mahabharata makes, that Indian religions make in general, possibly religions across the board make, but certainly the Indian religions do uh, in great detail, is uh, what everyone has probably experienced, that uh, terrible things happen. Um, Commonly, we, we might express this as shit happens. Um, 
the Mahabharata's way of approaching this notion is foregrounded at the beginning of its tale. So in the beginning of the text, you've got the, the, the blind old king, Thrutarashtra, and the, the, the war has happened. He's seen all of his children die, these terrible deaths. Um, there's been, uh, there's, uh, his children have died, his grandchildren have died. Um, and now he's, he and his, his, his wife, are bereft, bereft of everything that, they, that, that they've been attached to, that they've loved. And uh, he's in a state of terrible anguish uh, and distress. And so this is the prism through which the entire text, the entire tale is told. And so the op opening chapters of the Mahabharata reflect upon this, that you've got Tritarashtra, he's wailing, he's saying, you know, I've lost everything, what, what have I done, when, how did this happen to me, uh, why did it happen to me, at what point did it become irreversible, this sort of thing. And uh, his interlocutor, um, his companions, a, a fellow named Sanjay, who's been through this whole experience with him, and so he tries to comfort him. And the point of comfort that he's offering um, he in, in, in the process of comforting, he tells him many, many stories. He tells him something like 60 plus stories uh, of great, uh, renowned, gifted people, great kings who've achieved wonderful things, people who've done extraordinary things with their life, really uh, exceptional people. And the conclusion of every one of these 60 some lives is the same. They die. So the point that Sanjay tries to make in discussing this with Dhritarashtra uh, is that everyone dies and that death is an incontrovertible absolute of living. So from the moment we're born, we're destined to die. There's no escape to, uh, there's no escape to it. The, the, poet, the German poet Rilke puts this in a different way. He says, you carry your death inside of you like an apple carries its core. You're always walking with death. Death is your, uh, your constant companion. So we have uh, at home quite often, you know, my, my children will say to me about something relatively trivial. Oh, I'm going to die. Uh, uh, something, you know, I've got so much homework, I'm going to die. Um, and my answer to them is everyone's going to die. The question is always going to be about when and how, and of course, this 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 is a, 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 a trivial conversation, a facetious conversation, but that's the point. We're finite creatures. Everybody around us is finite, and even the most glorious, the most gifted of us, uh, will uh, will inevitably is destined to die. Think of people like you know Steve Jobs, extraordinarily gifted character. Um, so, oh, oh, he had everything right, uh, but he can't. The, the one part of existence he absolutely can't control. Nobody can, um, and inevitably at a young age, he's gone, like so many others, right, gifted people. So death is an absolute part of living. And just as death is an absolute part of living, suffering is inevitable. De death is one variety or experiencing people's death, the death of others around you is one variety of suffering. Uh, but suffering is inevitable. Suffering is an absolute uh, of our lives. So it's unavoidable. And Many times our suffering is undeserved, 
at least we feel it to be undeserved. We can come up with you know notions like karma, uh, notions like heaven and hell that there's soon going to be some recompense in the future. But but uh, in in my view, these are somewhat aspirational concepts uh, to solve our wounds, ways of comforting ourselves for what we experience in the world. But um, the basic point uh, remains that everybody suffers. We f- quite often we feel our suffering to be uh, to be unjust, to be unfair, and that's just the way it is. That's 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 what the world is. Uh, that's what human experience is. Things will always happen to us, and this these are. These are absolute conditions of living, death, suffering. These are absolute conditions of living. There's just no way of uh, of getting around them. So that's the first point that I think the Mahabharata makes. Interrupt me whenever you like. And, uh, you know, uh, should I say more? Or? Well, I just um, I have a nasty habit of um, allowing my guests to speak and not interrupting them. I'm teasing. You're you're welcome to go on. Uh, I will say, however, um, that um, uh, uh, there's just so much carnage. There's so much suffering in the Mahabharata. It's 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 um, it's a super important theme to the text. I'm glad you raise it, and I look forward to hearing about. Um, yeah. How that prepares us for life wisdom. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so absolutely. I'll just keep rambling on since I've got that invitation now. Um, so there absolutely is uh, an extraordinary amount of, of carnage, suffering, a, a lot of this, which seems completely unjust and completely unfair. And um, part of the invitation of or, or, or those uh, facts in the Mahabharata, the, the fact that it is so full of this kind of uh, just uh, unfair suffering, is to invite us. So the, the invitation is to for us to reflect on what is the nature of our experience in the world. Why are entire populations born to starvation or poverty while others are binging on the real housewives of Atlanta or what have you. In other words, the world is rife with unfairness. Why? That's a different question. What can we do about it? That's a different question. But the first point is to recognize that the world is unfair. Everybody suffers uh, uh, suffering, death. These are inevitable aspects of being alive. And uh, recognize recognize that, come to sort of peace with that, understanding that of that ex, uh, acceptance of that. Uh, and, and this this is part of the invitation uh, and the wisdom of our text. The second point that I would say in relation to that that we can derive from the Mahabharata is okay. So we can't is. Suffering is all around us, injustice, unfairness, just ugly experiences, unpleasant experiences are an inevitable part of of, uh, worldly experience. Not that that's all that's that's our experience. There's good stuff in the world too, obviously, but terrible things will periodically happen and sometimes there'll be crushingly bad experiences. So um, in the face of that, what do we do? Uh, what do we do with that? So I think the second point that I want to derive from there is basically 
what, the, what we can do with that is do your best, right? So if the, if the first point is that shit happens, uh, the second point would be do your best. You can't control your experience. You can't control the world around you. Um, there's only, the only thing that we have control over is our response to what we experience. So this is, comes directly out of the Gita, and it's everywhere in, in the text, in, in the Mahabharata, uh, where the Gita, the Gita is specifically saying, you can't control uh, what other people do. You can't control your, uh, what's happening around you. you some, some measure of it, maybe, but the bulk of it, you really can't control. Um, and so all you can do is focus on your response. And uh, that's quintessentially uh, the wisdom of the Mahabharata. So in terms of doing your best with the situation that you're dealt uh, in life, in, with the situation that you encounter, how do you do? How do you do your best in relation to suffering? How do you do? How do you deal with suffering uh, when when it's facing you? From the Mahabharata, I would say there are a couple points um, that are salient. The first is, and this sounds uh, just counterintuitively simple. The first point is to accept it. So the Mahabharata is very much a stoically oriented text. So suffering is an inevitable part of experience. Understand it, accept it. That's just the way it is. Don't fight it. Don't expect it to be different. Don't 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 um, rail against it. Accept that suffering is a part of your life and everyone else's life. And quite often the suffering will be unfair or will feel unjust. So first point is to accept it. The second point um, is somewhat, well, not just somewhat, is quite opposite to the way that modern psychology addresses the issue of suffering. The second point that the Mahabharata will say as a response, how do you deal with suffering, is don't dwell upon it. So there's a line in the text so, uh, in, in uh, one of the early uh, in one of the early books that says, "Well, how do you deal with suffering? The only way to deal with it is to not think about it. Don't dwell upon it. Dwelling on misery magnifies it. Negative emotion is easy and it's addictive. Positive emotion requires cultivation and discipline. So." The Mahabharata's attitude to suffering is, it's inevitable, how do you deal with it? Don't expect anything different, don't expect there not to be suffering, expect that there will be uh, sometimes very challenging moments in life. And how do you deal with them? Don't focus on the suffering. Don't fo don't focus on uh, on uh, on on the misery, on the terrible thing. Um, try to, uh, don't flip out. Don't don't overreact. Don't even much react at all. But rather take uh, uh, move through the world with uh, uh, with calmness. You're faced with suffering. All you can do is do your best in responding to it with the right motives, with the right intentions, with the right effort. So once you've done that, 
knowing that you've done all that you could have done, recognize the rest is not in your hands. And all amounts of fretting, worrying, you know, agonizing is not going to change the fact that it's not in your hands. Move through the world with a measure of calmness or placidity or equanimity or, um, or, or, or resistance to, to wild emotional lurching this way or that. Move through the world with calmness, knowing that you've done your best, knowing that you've done all you could have done. So that would say that's the second point uh, of wisdom that I, I find to be uh, really helpful on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, difficult to practice, uh, but uh, but powerful at the same time because the negative emotion, uh, as we say, um, it, it sucks you in. It is addictive. It, it's you. You do want to um, dwell and to immerse yourself in all the. Why did this happen? This terrible injustice, and why did this person do this to me, etc. You do want to do that. It's kind of an addictive thing. But rather to set it aside and with discipline focus on uh, on what you can do and leave the rest behind. And the third point that I find to be really powerful, and this uh, for me is the most um, enlightening aspect of wisdom in the Mahabharata, is I summarize it as don't be a jerk. So the first, if the first point is shit happens, second point, what do you do about it? Well, you do your best. Do the best under the circumstances. There's nothing more you can do. Leave the rest behind. The third point is about how you move actively in the world, uh, the principle that I can identify is don't be a jerk. In other words, recognize that everybody's suffering just like you. Why are they suffering? The Mahabharata will go further in its wisdom to say, well, ultimately, because they are you. In other words, they're no different from you. They're suffering beings like, uh, like yourself. So recognize that all of us are living our own painful story. You're wound up in yours. I'm wound up in mine. Mine is not the same as that of a child starving in some part of the world or a billionaire whose marriage is just broken up. Uh, but each of us will feel this um, feel our suffering to be painful. So whoever I am in this scenario, recognize, recognize. I, mean, I, I don't want to trivialize child starving, obviously that takes precedence over everything else, but the point being that all of us are immersed in our own private worlds, our own private individual stories. All of us are suffering in different and unique ways, but to sort of lift our heads outside of ourselves from time to time to say, to recognize that everybody else is also suffering in their own way. And while it's not my variety of suffering or mine might seem more intense to me, it doesn't mean they don't experience theirs to be um, very painful to themselves. So see the bigger picture. 
uh, the Mahabharata will want to put this in the language of spirit and soul and see that all of our suffering are ultimately uh, one and the same, uh, that the other is no different from ourselves. Uh, you ultimately are no different than I. You, uh, I am, you look different, etc. cetera. Uh, but, we're, but ultimately, our worldly experience is characterized by the same basic conditions, uh, the same basic facts of, of uh, you know, people's death, people leaving us, losing jobs, uh, stress over children or money or what have, what have you. We're all suffering um, in, in our own ways. And so the point to take away from that is to move through the world with empathy, not merely compassion. Compassion obviously uh, is an outcome of empathy, but to move through the world with empathy, to see, to, to identify with other people's suffering, to see other people's suffering, identify with other people's suffering, um, recognize it as just another variety of my own suffering. And, um, and, and that should lead me to not be a jerk, to be good to people, to be kind to people, compassionate to people, um, you know, caring, uh, considerate, all of those kinds of things. So um, in, in some words, I've tried to say, it's like three little bits of wisdom that I've garnered uh, recently um, from the Mahabharata for my particular circumstances is terrible things happen, whether you want them to or not, whether you expect them to, whether you think they're deserved. Terrible things happen. You can't control them. All you can do is do your best and try to leave the rest behind. And then even and then don't become so immersed in your own story that you can't recognize that somebody else is living a story. That story intersects with yours, but uh, but, but that, that story is powerful for the person living it. And uh, you know maybe even enter into that story, enter into somebody else's story, learn, see it from their shoes, um, see it with empathy, with kindness, with compassion. So uh, in terms of, uh, let me pause there for a moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, so thank you for those um, uh, three very rich uh, nuggets that you've distilled from Mahabharata. Can you say a little bit about a particular um, character, juncture, episode, vignette that comes to mind? I'm sure there are dozens, but something to give the audience a flavor of the type of thing we see in the Mahabharata, perhaps particularly that has, um, that has been part of your process of distilling this wisdom. Well, so, so far I've been talking about the, the heavy things in the Mahabharata, right? Our existential experience. Um, but the Mahabharata is so much more. And one of the things that gets neglected about it, um, or that uh, maybe not, if not neglected, at least that's understated or under-recognized, is how uh, humorous it is, uh, how, the, the number of funny stories, the number of heroic stories uh, that are in there. And so uh, part of what I love about being immersed in the Mahabharata is finding these funny stories, which are indicative 
of our greater humanity, which speak to our humanity. I mean, we're like silly people. Human humans are, are silly creatures. We do idiotic things. I think of Parikshit. You know, he's been he he's uh, he's been cursed that he's going to die from snake bite. What does he do? Uh, he cre- has a pillow created, and he, there he is. He's sitting at the top of this pillow for a week and a half, or for a week, trying to avoid a snake. I mean, there's so many uh, just hilarious things there. People reacting in wild ways uh, because of you know completely minor things. Somebody has a hair, uh, the. Uh, a character who sees a, a hair in his food and he's so incensed, he's going to curse, you know, curse the cook or curse the host who served it to him. Well, I mean, you can just say it was an accident, but no, let's, you know, get going a battle of curses. Uh, there's a lot of that there. One of my favorite characters in the Mahabharata. Well, some of my favorite characters in the Mahabharata are women, actually. Um, partly because they're their heroism goes under-recognized and uh, their, um, their potential as uh, their ingenuity goes under-recognized. So one of my favorite characters in the Mahabharata is Amba. Uh, she's got a brilliant story. So she starts off, she's the eldest of, you know the story, Raj, so, uh, but she's the eldest of three daughters um, and they're all set, we meet her when they're all set to pick their husband from, you know, a ceremony, something similar to what, you know, the bachelorette. So you've got all these bachelors assembled and you're going to pick one with a rose or what have you. So so this is is the context. You've got these three girls who are going to pick their husbands in this way. And what happens on the day that this ceremony is going to happen, they're going to pick their husbands. Amba already has somebody in mind that she's in love with and she, she, she wants to marry. But before she can do that, all three of these girls are kidnapped. So they're kidnapped by Bhishma, who's uh, one of the central characters uh, of our text. They're kidnapped and uh, they're taken away and they're supposed to marry uh, another Bhishma's brother. So the younger two girls don't have a problem with this. They weren't particularly interested in anybody and they kind of like the new guy, the, the uh, the new prince. So they're fine with marrying him. Amba, however, was in love with someone, so she doesn't want to marry him. So she goes up to Bhishma and she says outright, uh, look, I, I had somebody in mind already, um, and uh, that's the man I want to marry. Um, doesn't seem reasonable that you should have kidnapped me from there to marry me to your brother. And you should really do the right thing here. Uh, you should let me go so I can be with the man that I love. So Bhishma is an honorable fellow. He lets her go. She goes back to her lover, uh, but her lover says, oh, no, I can't marry you anymore. You're you're spoiled goods. You've been touched by another man. And apart from that, the man you've been touched by is kind of scary guy. He's He, he kidnapped you in the first place. And who knows? He decides to come after me and I'm, I'm dead meat. So um, I, I can't marry you anymore. So he sends her back. So she goes back to Bhishma. She's like, OK, well, this is terrible. Um, for no fault of mine, I was kidnapped at my wedding by Bhishma. And now, uh, as a result of that, now my lover doesn't want me either. So that prospect of marriage is gone. She goes back to Bhishma and she says, well, you marry me since you're the one who 
caused this problem in the first place. So it's only fair that you take responsibility. Pishma has taken a vow of celibacy. He says, I can't marry you. Of course not. I've made this great vow. I'm not going back on it. So now Amba stuck. This man's not going to marry her. That man's not going to marry her. Pishma says, well, go back to your father. You know, you lived with your father before. Go back to your father. I don't want to go back to my father. Uh, why, why would I do that? So what does she do? She leaves and she goes off to, uh, to chart a path for herself. Um, and she reflects on this. She says, well, you know, these three men have sort of punted me about my father, my lover, my Bhishma. They punted me about among themselves. What am I going to do? Um, so she thinks about this and she says, well, it seems to me that Bhishma is the biggest cause of my problems. He's, he, he's, uh, he caused my problems by kidnapping me. Had he not done, I would have been happily married uh, by now, etc. So she decides she's going to take revenge upon Bhishma. So she tries, she talks to various warriors, famed warriors, says, saying, you know, will you avenge me? Will you fight on my behalf? Will you, you know, uh, it, uh, be my proxy? Oh, Bhishma is a famed warrior, highly skilled. Will you fight on my behalf? And all of them refuse her. They're all afraid of him. One of them even cries, but it, it, Bhishma prevails and uh, she's unable to get revenge. Now, Amba is sitting here. She's like, well, okay, I'm still single. Nobody can seem to defeat Bhishma. And I can't, I can neither get married and have love and children, nor can I get revenge against the man who destroyed my life. What am I going to do? So she decides to, she does tapasya, she does tapas, uh, she, she engages in great austerities in order to, uh, to, to create power for herself. And uh, in this way, she determines what, uh, she gets a boon that she's going to be reborn in the next life as a man. And she herself then, as a man, will kill Bhishma. Um, so she, uh, once she's got this wound, she determines, okay, well, why wait? I'm in a hurry. Let me do this right now. She kills herself because she's in a hurry to be reborn uh, so that she can come back and kill Bhishma. Why is a woman she couldn't kill him? Well, you know, it's a little bit harder. Uh, so uh, apparently this can only happen uh, as a duel with a man. And Bhishma won't fight a woman. There's that as well. So that's the first half of the story. The second half of the story is Amba kills herself and she's reborn. Now she's reborn as, uh, as a girl. She was supposed to be reborn as a man, remember, so she can get revenge, but she's reborn now as a girl. Um, and uh, what's worse, she doesn't remember her past life. She doesn't remember her past grudge. She doesn't remember uh, her hatred of Pishma. And so, you know, just think of how frustrating that is. So she's born as a girl. Her parents, however, had been promised uh, they were expecting a boy. And they decide, well, they're going to just raise her as a boy. Because some we were expecting a boy. There was a prophecy we were going to get a boy. We've landed up with a girl. But maybe somehow or the other, this is going to turn out to be a boy. So they dress her as a boy. They tell everybody this is a boy. They raise her as a boy. Um, uh, and um, they, so this goes all the way up to eventually they even get her engaged to a girl. Telling the other girl, telling the girl that this is a boy, 
that Amba is a boy. Her, her name, her, her name in her second life is Shikandini. So that she's a boy. And eventually they get her married to this girl, telling the other family that this is a boy that the other girl is marrying. Now on the wedding night, Amba freaks out, panics, and runs away uh, to the forest, realizing that, uh, of course, her secret's going to be out very soon, and panicking about that. So she runs, she runs into the forest. She's crying. She's like, I think I have to kill myself. What are my options here now, uh, etc. And then somebody there helps her. There's, there's a tree spirit who says, well, why are you crying? Let me help you. He exchanges his sex with her. So she goes back. Now, all of a sudden, she's a boy. She's a man. She goes back to the, to the palace uh, as a man with, with male body parts. The, his, uh, the, his, not her, his bride is able to confirm that uh, she's a man. And henceforth, then, uh, she's... she's transformed into a man and lives as a man and uh, as this man in this male body now she's going to take revenge upon Pishma. so when you think about the the arc of this story right you've got this like heroic little this heroic woman who first she stands up for herself she's assertive against you know a famed warrior that other men couldn't stand up to so she stands up to him says well you you kidnapped me i wanted to marry somebody else um and then she goes off looking for ways to avenge herself against him that doesn't work she kills herself to be reborn to avenge him and then this sort of travesty of it all uh, which is you know, on the one hand you know pathos filled and all that it's like it's quite funny there she is in a second uh, in her second life she had all this hatred but she can't remember hating him that's a, 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 a upsetting annoying is that you've had this great hatred you've done all this to avenge yourself now you can't remember the hatred um and eventually she does then uh, end up killing so a heroic character full of humor full of intensity full of passion um so amba one of my favorite characters in the text there are lots of these um and some of the women characters just um full of uh, of spirit and passion Absolutely brilliant story. Um, uh, the typical brilliant, compelling storytelling, for which you have a knack, <laughs> clearly. Um, uh, and there's just so much there. There's just so much there. It's a story that will stay with you, uh, with the hearer for some time, or at least aspects thereof. And if one stops to think and reflect, uh, to, to 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 sort of decode or to to interpret, it's just it's so rich and that's just one crevice of you know the jungle of Mahabharata so thank you for sharing that with us now it seems to me that you're of the opinion that these tales from ancient India are quite relevant to the modern world um, would you agree with that well absolutely um, while I of course recognize that the Mahabharata is is grounded in Indian history, culture, religion, society, uh, imagination, national imagination, uh, etc. At the same time, the characters 
the experience of characters is pretty universal, right? This story, if you think about it, uh, could happen pretty well. You can imagine a story like this, where um, you, you, you've got a woman um, engaged with powerful men around her who's been wounded by powerful men who has to then, you know, stand up for herself and assert herself in different ways different ways so there are um, the characters their stories their predicaments etc uh, uh, their emotions these these are universal so uh, i see this as being while well, uh, certainly it's grounded in an indian uh, context uh, i see these characters as speaking to universal human conditions so uh, and not only universal cross culturally but also uh, trans historically so i think the same predicaments apply today in slightly different ways uh, than they uh, as they did before you think of shakuntala for example the story of shakuntala this great uh, just towering uh, woman in um, in the Mahabharata, the mother of the Bharatas, right? So she uh, she's in the forest. She's seduced by this powerful man who has basically uses her for sex one night, promises her all sorts of things, and then completely forgets about her, neglects her promises. He's going to come back for her, uh, make her uh, his queen, etc. But then he, he leaves and he completely forgets about her. Meanwhile, now she's pregnant. She delivers. She's in the forest. She goes back there. And she finally goes after him, saying, "Hey, this uh, I've got." your child here and you promised me all these things these things and he says well i don't know you i don't recognize you i don't know this child we can see this story happening today we can hear see the story happening 2000 years ago we can see the story happening in india we can see the story happening in canada this is a universal story the arc of the story is pretty well accessible at any point in history in any culture so yes I, I see these stories as being as speaking to human foibles, human conditions, and uh, you know having something of value, some 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 light to shed on uh, how silly humans are and how um, some uh, you know what are our passions, uh, what are our proclivities, uh, cross culturally, trans historically, just as humans. Now, for folks who may be interested in learning more about the Mahabharata, there are no shortage of um, online websites and abridged translations and full translations of certain of its volumes. Um, but then where does one find uh, an incarnate bard telling the tales anew? <laughs> I don't mean me. <laughs> I mean uh, Dr. Nand. Um, now, rumor has it that you have, uh, uh, you have begun a podcast called the Mahabharata Podcast, which we'll, we'll link to the podcast notes of this podcast. Tell us about the podcast. Right, the Mahabharata Podcast. So I started this because I teach the Mahabharata all the time. And um, in the conditions of the pandemic, when it wasn't possible to be teaching in the usual way, um, the podcast became a uh, teaching tools. So it became a way of uh, projecting 
what I would normally have projected to, you know, the few people in, who are captive in my class, they have no choice. Um, well, they have some choice, but uh, at, at that point, uh, this is my captive audience. Now I can put it out there to anybody who, who has an interest in listening. So uh, this is uh, many of our passion, the, the, this, this text, discussing it, um, talking about it. So this is what I'm doing in the, in the podcast. And part of what I wanted to do there is to create a learning tool. So the Mahabharata is a very complex tale. It's difficult to read. If you actually, you know, foolishly, like most scholars, uh, have the ambition of reading it cover to cover, uh, trying to get the full uh, uh, the full picture of the text. Uh, it's very difficult to, to read because it's convoluted. There's so much in there, things, uh, just stories intersecting with other stories, uh, bizarre discourses that seem to have no place whatsoever in, uh, in, in the telling of the tale. So it's difficult uh, to read as a novice. And so what I wanted to do is to tell this to to do the Mahabharata from the beginning to the end uh, without any gaps. Uh, I say that with some hesitation. There are obviously always going to be gaps. You're short of just reading it out from beginning to end. There are going to be some little gaps, but the ambition and the effort is to not skip pieces. There are you, you can suddenly find versions of the Mahabharata um, that are reasonably accessible, uh, that, that are abridged. But inevitably what happens when you have an abridged version is you're picking the dramatic parts or you're picking certain parts, you're leaving out others. I didn't want to leave anything out. And I didn't want to, I wanted to tell the entire story and include in it all its discourses in the way that the, that the text does itself. Uh, because, you know, let's see what that's all about. We'll find out when we get to the end, is there some, you know, meaning or is there some greater, uh, greater principle to it? So I've tried to tell uh, tell the tale without leaving the uh, the difficult bits behind, and to make it accessible, to make it uh, so it's, it's short snippets, like twenty minutes each episode, and to make it short, to make it light and accessible. And so this is this is what the the podcast has been. So so far, I'm about forty one episodes in. Let's see where we go. How far we get. 41 episodes, and we've just finished the first book. We've got 17 to go. Uh, so for any of you interested in the Mahabharata uh, or learning uh, um, from Dr. Dhand, interested in, in life wisdom encoded in tales of old from ancient India, um, by all means, check out the podcast. If, if for nothing else, then you'll get to enjoy some captivating storytelling. Um, we um very happy to see the podcast come into existence because I had the good fortune of hearing um hearing Archie Don's um a really insightful and captivating um narrating narration of these tales and their significance as an undergrad a thousand years ago in her <laughs> class. She was one of my uh, first professors of um, Hindu studies. I actually 
uh, took severance from a, a, an office monkey job uh, to finish my BA in Hindu studies because similarly, but unbeknownst to me that she had a similar path, I was interested in English and philosophy and history. And I ended up discovering that I can broach those disciplines along with life's large questions um, in the narratives of ancient India. So I have kept quiet for most of this podcast, thankfully, <laughs> Otherwise, but there has been, uh, there, there's a great deal of overlap between her work uh, and my own insofar as um, her influence on my trajectory and also um, having the good fortune of calling her um, a, a colleague uh, and a friend. So I do suggest you check out the podcast. Before we close, uh, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I certainly, uh, you know, um, I invite people to join the community of listeners. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, I mean, I certainly love it. And if you have any interest, I, I invite anybody to join. Um, if you have an interest in learning more, I've got a companion website where I try to post uh, relevant articles or further reading. And uh, I invite comments as well. So I recently managed to figure out how to set up a Facebook page because people kept saying, you know, how do I comment or how do we engage in discussion, etc. So uh, happy to have uh, listeners and thank you for your attention and thank you for this opportunity and this interview as well Raj. it's been my pleasure uh thank you for appearing today uh, for those of you listening we have been speaking with uh, dr arti dond who's associate professor in the department for the study of religion at the university of toronto and her expertise is of course the mahabharata this labyrinthine insightful um, um, um narrative work of ancient india that is uh, so uh very relevant to this day until next time, keep uh, keep listening uh, and keep contemplating uh, <laughs> the narratives of the Mahabharata. Take care. <laughs>